Welcome to The Changeable, my collection of conversations about the big ideas shaping our future. Sometimes it's hard to believe that massive companies like Apple, Facebook and Google all began as startup businesses. In fact, almost every business begins as a startup. As great ideas continue to come from everywhere, the environments to create, nurture and support innovation long term are critical to solving the challenges of tomorrow. My guest today is Michael Bromman. He has worked across the world helping organisations foster and drive innovation as the group CEO of Stone & Chalk in Sydney, Australia. Michael Bromley, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome to be here in, um, in your scale-up space. Uh, in Stone and Chalk in Haymarket in Sydney. Um, really been looking forward to speaking with you about lots of things, but particularly uh, startups and some of the some of the things that we've spoken about quite a bit before. But thought there would be a great place to start in terms of innovation. How did you arrive in that space? What did that look like for you, and what's that path? Because I think a lot of people very keen to be in that space? How, do you, how did it start for you? Yeah, look, I, I think there are a lot of people who are keen to be in this space, but I think everyone gets there in their own way. Mm. For me, uh, boy, it, it really goes back, I'm going to have to say this, it goes back to my childhood. <laughs> it, does, it, it goes back to talking uh, with my dad, who was a philosophy professor at the time and ended up being the, um, the guy who built and developed video games for a company in the U.S. called Coleco, and uh, the interesting correlation between philosophy and how you learn and unlearn and challenge assumptions and look at the world around you is uh, that that teaches you how to think about the world differently. And that's what innovation is. It's really how do you think about things that exist in ways that people haven't thought about them before. So be between that early childhood and... Uh, studying philosophy myself at school and getting into investment banking, uh, I, I put my own little spin on it. I basically took that knowledge and, and that experience of, of thinking about the world differently and applied it to business. And you can see where we're going with that. And suddenly, you know, 10 years as an, as an investment banker and then uh, deciding to try and go on the other side of the ball instead of helping others build and create their own visions, um, I went and joined... AOL in the US and they're already in that innovation space really breaking down barriers around what connectivity meant and from there it just escalated to more and more companies doing similar things. Yeah right so and I know we've worked together um, and uh, have I've seen you in, in in action but I mean your, your, your experience across innovation in different places and seeing it in different ways is just, uh, I guess, really, really interesting to, to drill into. So you're with Stone & Chalk now, um, helping startups and scale-ups to, to, I guess, come into their own and become fully-fledged businesses that drive value. But in the experiences that you had previous to this, where do people get innovation right? What does that look like and what are some of the factors that go into that? I think getting innovation right is about not presupposing the answer. Hmm. I think that's 99% of it. Uh, 
I even had a conversation with uh, a mutual uh, colleague of ours in the past and had that same conversation. And the conversation started out with, how do I find who wants this service or product or thing? And I said, well, you're kind of going around the, uh, about this backward. What you really need to do is find the pain. Mm. Find the pain and find a different way to solve that or a better way to solve that pain instead of trying to find somebody who wants to buy your product or service or right. idea. Right. So what people who get innovation right find the pain, and then they just look at it, well, what's the best way to solve that? And that may not be the way it's been solved before. And sometimes it's similar and it's incremental and it's not innovative. Mm. Other times somebody comes up with an idea that someone else hasn't had or brings knowledge of a different space or not, or, or uh, industry or et cetera experiences to an area where it hasn't been applied before. And that's really where innovation gets done right. Yeah, right. Okay, so really what you're saying is most times when it fails, people have an idea in mind and are looking for the problem to fit the solution they've created. Yeah, it's the it's the old, you know, I've got a solution looking for a problem, problem. Mm. <laughs> that's uh, Whether that's most of the time, or certainly those people often fail. Uh there's other more mundane reasons for success, uh, for, for lack of success in innovation, competency, um, right. vision, execution, funding, you know, the business acumen to, to, to make it all work. Those all play a role. But I guess essentially when you break down what makes innovation succeed or fail, it's really hard to fail if you're helping alleviate pain at scale. Right, right. It, you can get the business model wrong. You can get the pricing wrong. You can get the go-to-market wrong. All that's true, but that's recoverable. But right. if you don't get that right, it's irrecoverable. Mm. Yeah, and regardless of whether you're a startup or you're doing an idea inside of a larger organization, that largely is the make or break, right? Yeah, and look, the the reasons for failure at, of innovation and large corporations. <laughs> <laughs> We could spend days talking about that, as you know. But for, for me, the biggest issue with large corporates and, and innovation is a, co uh, a combination of not understanding the context. Mm. So not recognizing that innovation isn't a thing that you can turn on or off. No one person should be in charge of innovation. It's a culture. It's a mindset. Uh, and what happens often is somebody doesn't set the context properly. And so there's an expectation of a, a result at a certain time with a certain magnitude. And that rarely happens when you're trying to innovate because it's iterative and it's hunt and peck and it's searching and it's failure and learning and iterating again. Uh, so if you go in with a preconceived notion, okay, you've got six months and you'll deliver X and it'll be Y and you're gonna, you're gonna really struggle. And what'll happen is if you set that expectation up front, or more importantly, if you fail to set a different expectation up front, corporates will hold you to it and their, their willingness to allow uh, growth and, and iteration and experimentation is, is much shorter than it is in, in the startup world. Interesting. So would you say then that there's an element of innovation in a larger organization? It almost starts, starts from a, a flawed perspective in that it's as much about value creation as it is about learning and about being in an environment. You, you said the word context that, that's, that affords these things to come into being. I suppose 
is that part of what constrains it on on a larger organization side where it it probably the structure exists already the thinking kind of needs to be shoehorned into a particular way of being or way of thinking that already exists yeah well if you think about it large corporates are built for the express purpose of keeping things like that away <laughs> right they Don't do the thing a certain yeah. way deliver it a certain way exactly and you repeat rinse repeat rinse repeat right and uh that's the opposite of innovation and so the ability to have that going on mm. in most of the organization and then this massive disruption of these innovation programs going on at the same time in the same culture in the same structure you know it's, it's hard to imagine it ever works frankly based on based on what i've seen uh so, so the, the key is to understand that you're doing with two different things and making the space for innovation to happen. Yeah. And then it brings its own challenges. You get, you get jealousy. You get why they get to do that and we have to do it this way <laughs> and, you know, all of that stuff. So, again, it comes back to context. What context are you setting for the organization? Do people know why you're doing it this way? Do you know, are people understanding why there's different parameters for the group doing this thing over here than there are for the thing doing the group doing the, the bread and butter that's right. putting the, yeah. the, the, the revenue on the table and the earnings reports and the consistency? You have to keep churning that out while doing this stuff that you may not even see a result from. Yeah. If you don't know that's going on, you're going to have problems. If people understand it and you start to build that expectation and understanding then you have a chance yeah yeah so to change gears to the the startup space i mean so many modern day businesses have started that way particularly in the tech sector um, but really every business starts its life as a startup in one form or another because it starts from nothing right so but i guess to to look at the modern startup space we're really talking about sort of tech-driven businesses, things that, or possibly others, but um, a lot of tech-driven businesses a lot of are looking for opportunities to, you know, create something new and a novel and a value in that space. What does what does a startup space that's healthy indicate for the broader economy and environment? Because I feel like they're the sort of businesses that are doing things five, ten years from now that participate in something that take things in new directions? Yeah, I, I think a healthy startup sector, a healthy innovation sector is a pipeline. Mm. And that is an, a sustained economic development pipeline. And so if you've got a healthy startup sector and you've got constant new um, thinking happening, a new organization starting, and new companies and new products and new services and new tech being experimented and played with and discarded and failed and succeeding. If you've got that going and you've got that healthy growth, then what you're seeing is the sustainability of the future of that economic uh, development that, you, that you're currently involved in. And so that's why places like Sydney, which has you know a terrific startup sector, uh, spends a lot of time, effort, and money investing in precincts like Tech Central, like the one we're in today in our in our scale-up hub, but also the startup hub in Wynyard, where we have our startup hub. Uh, you've got two precincts that are dedicated to innovation, and we've got uh, companies like us who are incubating and accelerating and advising and helping to grow that. And you've got companies like, for example, Fishburner, who's in the same building with, Fishburners are in the same building with us in Wynyard, and they're at earlier stage startup development. Right. So, so you've got this pipeline going. You've got people who are 
just getting ideas and thoughts together. And then you've got companies like uh, companies that are, are at the MVP or later stage. They've got product market fit and they're starting to learn to, to build a business. And that, that's where we take in, take over. And then they come over here to the scale up hub when they've started to get a little bit more robust and complexity into robustness and complexity into their business. They're looking to expand perhaps overseas, et cetera. You can see that, 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 um, that shift going from early stage ideas and thoughts all the way through to economic generation through larger businesses. And, and that's going to produce the next set of corporates. I mean, we can talk about Canva. We can talk about Atlassian who started that way and grew and built and grew. Yeah. And now they're driving tremendous economic development into this, into this area. Uh, so we're not necessarily just looking for the unicorns like that, but we are looking for volume of growth and new ideas so that we can see that the future has a future. Yeah. So do you see a lot of new ideas coming through with different founders, different people? Do you see the same people coming through? Is it a is it a mix of how does that how does that normally look? It's a mix. We've got, you know, four or five or six time founders in this in this right. community. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, the, the biggest secret in in startup land is uh, venture capital is available yeah. for people. Yep. not ideas. So mm. if you've had three or four successful startups and exits, you're going to find money. And in fact, you might find money without an idea. Mm. I've seen people get funded for whatever they think of next. Right. Um, because people trust the person and, exactly. the, and the, the experiences that they've had. It's a formula, right? There are people mm. who get it. They get this model. They get this business. They get the formula. And so if you've got that winning story... And you've done it two or three times. People will will follow that. On the other hand, you got to start somewhere. And mm. I see some of the most exciting and brave and fascinating people and technologies every day. And the best part of my job is learning about what people are thinking of doing with technology that never would have crossed my mind or most people's minds. And that you know that's amazing as well. So a healthy innovation hub like we have has a mix of brand new founders. Yeah and more experienced founders, and that's where community comes in. Mm. Those new founders are learning from those multi-time founders, and those multi-time founders are learning from corporates and advisory and, and from other founders and from the rest of the community that we, that we bring into the hubs. So I would say the most important factor for us, when, as we're sitting here in the Scale-Up Hub, to, to be successful, to help incubate the startup and scale-up community, is bringing them together. It's convening and facilitating that group. Yeah, and, and you mentioned community a few times. Could you talk a little bit about why that's important? Because I I feel like yes, there's facilities that are part of being part of Stone and Chalk or another community like that or n another organization like that. But why is it so important that you have that collective come together? And you've tr touched on it a little bit, but like to hear more about that. Yeah, look, facilities are important. I won't lie. I mean, we're sitting in here in our, our <laughs> podcast our recording studio, studio. Yeah. Uh, in, in the Scale Up Hub. But, but really, anybody can provide four walls, right? What we provide is access. That's how we describe it. It's access to the things that startups and scale-ups need and want and will benefit from outside of building and selling their product. Right. We try to provide everything else. And community is important because... We talked about innovation before. One of the ways to create an environment where innovation can happen, because you don't create innovation, mm. uh, is creating the, the space where people can collide. 
yes. ideas can bounce into each other and somebody from one area can talk to somebody from another area and say, hey, have you thought about this? Mm. And suddenly that opens up a whole new avenue of thought around product development or sales or market or whatever. So part of the benefit of community is just the different perspectives that we bring together. It's that convening power that creates the collisions of ideas, that creates the sparks that create new ideas. The second is just learning from people who've been where you are right? Yeah. and teaching people who are going where you've been. And we encourage that. In fact, every resident in our community, in every hub that we have, has a requirement, has an actual, actual obligation to give back to the community. And that could be through making themselves available to sharing their wins and losses to participating with webinars and training sessions or demo days or whatever it is. Right. Uh, and the funny thing is, if you vet for that when, we're, when, we, when we bring in new startups, we never have to actually call it an obligation. They just do it naturally. Yeah. It's kind of like, and I know we'll get into this, but it's kind of like high performers. High mm. performers are both learners and teachers at the same time, and we make sure that our community is full of people who need to learn and will also teach. And sometimes that's the same people. And that's probably a good segue into that and i think it's one of the the areas that i've really loved to kind of hear from you and and even dig into now but high performing teams is one of the things that again you love talking about so could you talk through a few of the factors that make a high performing team because uh i remember sitting in, in on presentations like this quite a few times but um, it's great to hear, and it's always good for a refresher. So, um, yeah, and talk and through I those. Still do that one, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, high-performing teams. Um, think of it this way, especially with startups and scale-ups who are time poor, resource poor, and generally financially poor. Uh, you don't have the luxury of a low-performing team, right? Yeah. Think of it that way. Why would you hire two people to do the job that one high performer could do? Mm. And why would you hire people who deliver value in X time when you could find somebody to do it in half X, right? You can't, you don't have the luxury of time, money, and resources. And so high-performing teams are even more critical, actually, in the startup world than they are in the corporate world, but they're critical everywhere. So for me, it all starts with culture. Right? Mm. Because culture will eat strategy for breakfast, as we all know, but culture isn't a thing you create. It's an environment that you provide that creates a byproduct, which is your culture, which is the interactions between humans. That's mm. culture. Right now, we're forming our little mini culture here as we speak, uh, and we've got our own little culture anyway because yep. we've worked together for years, but but that's the first thing, and, and high performance happens when you have a culture that allows high performance to grow and thrive. That's not as easy as it sounds. No. It, it, it's, it's creating an environment where there's trust, where there's safety, where there's expectation of high performance without creating the pressure and and dealing with the fact that you might get jerks in there that that are brilliant and you you can't tolerate that right so so that's where it starts it starts with culture and then it starts with understanding what's expected of you and as you know Ray, we, we um, I always have nine core values and I think about these all the time and we hire for these core values and we review and appraise people with with these core values in mind and we are very specific about what we mean by these core values, what's important to us. And we are constantly looking at, do people display these core values? And if mm. they don't, do you have people who will question the actions of others when they're inconsistent with those core values? Right. 
And so that becomes a self-propagating culture. And so instead of having to build and constantly uh, organize and orchestrate a culture, if you hire the right people the first time, the culture just organically happens and, mm. and comes out of that. So that's the other part. Uh, and, it's, and it's also those expectations. You know, what does it mean to be a high performer? What, what are we interested in? What are we not interested in? And, you know, we, we talk about red flags and green flags. And you know, everyone always talks about red flags when you see something wrong. But what are the green flags when you see something right? Yeah. So knowing what you're looking for, not just what you're not looking for, but what you're looking for in people and in performance and in delivery and in, and in behavior is mm. really important. And all of this is what, what I d describe as behavior-driven culture or behavior-driven growth. And it all comes from being around people you want to be around. And that generally creates an environment where people are happy and trusted and trusting. Um, and then, you know, you can, you can kind of build on that from there. So high performance, um, it's the single most important success factor mm. in a startup. Yeah, well, I've, I've thought long and hard about what it means because... There's also there's so many elements to it, and you mentioned values and and culture and um, and a lot of that is a balance between the individual finding alignment with the organization or the group or the team or whatever it might be, but also the team giving license to the individual. So there's a there's an element of that you know reciprocation that is required to to really make this work and it's i mean it's amazing when you're a part of a team like that um, but it's almost like lightning in a bottle in finding all of the ingredients you need because it isn't just one or two things it's 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 a dozen or more where you kind of dynamic. pull those together it changes and correct shifts keeps and shifting and you you've got to keep finding it and following it and losing it and getting it back and and absolutely uh which is why that dedication and commitment to culture is, you know, is the critical piece. Uh, and, and you're right, when you find it, it's magical. Yeah. You just kind of want to hold on to it as long as you can. So how, how does a leader best hold on to that or work with the dynamics of that? Uh, I guess, sorry for the big sigh, but it's, <laughs> it's the hardest thing a leader has to do. Right? Yeah. It is literally, that is what you're being paid to do as a leader is to understand your people, um, what they can do, what they can't do, what you can do, what you can't do as a leader, what you can encourage, how, how to push the right buttons and how to not push the wrong ones. Um, and we've all done both. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's recognizing that it's a constant, dynamic, never-ending struggle. Yeah. Um, but it's all worth it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. So, um if we were to put our our hat on and talk about what the future looks like, because obviously startups sit in that place where it's emergent emergent businesses really. To you, what what is what does the next five years look like? And we can we can start wherever you want on that that question because I think it's a big one. But what does the future look like? And particularly in the startup space, where do you see this all going? Yeah, um, crystal ball time. Yeah, actually, it's not as hard as that in many ways. I think the next five years look like the uh, intersection of AI, quantum computing, 
Web3, and cybersecurity. Those are the things that are going to absolutely change everything about almost everything. Hmm. I mean, I know that's a big question, but there's a big answer for you. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the impact that any one of those has on their own, they're big. Hmm. But when you bring them together, they become just monumental. AI is, I mean, we've all been, been inundated with, with AI over the last six months or so. But when you add quantum computing on top of that, which doesn't really exist in the tandem yet today, that's, and by the way, that's coming fast, that's going to completely be a game changer again at the same or maybe greater level of impact as we've already seen with AI. Right. If you then add, you know, um, AI and quantum computing and you put, um, you put Web3 in there and suddenly you're creating this decentralized, autonomous thinking um, and incredibly fast and powerful processing all together, we can't yet even begin to think of what that's going to do and what that's going to change. Underlying all of that is what does that mean for cybersecurity? What does that mean for yeah. us as a, as a civilization? Uh, everyone's afraid of the robots. I'm afraid of people. <laughs> I am not afraid <laughs> of artificial intelligence. I'm deathly afraid of people um, because the people are the ones who are going to harness it for evil and, 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 and bad intent. So when you think about AI and cyber, uh, uh, AI and quantum together, you know, the, the idea of our most uh, difficult and complex encryption today being opened as easily as you open an email off mm. your desktop is a reality with quantum computing and right. cyber together. So now we have to create quantum encryption so that we can actually stay ahead of the bad actors so that we can start thinking about being protected in a quantum world. But how many people are thinking about a quantum world right now? How many people are thinking about a world with, that it's not only driven by quantum compute, computing, but also AI and decentralized so we don't see it, we don't feel it necessarily, it's all automated, it's behind this, the curtain, um, hopefully it's making the right decisions, but right. it's making them at a pace that humans can't keep up. Yeah, oh, That's the next five years in my mind. Yeah. It's a lot to keep me up at night. <laughs> so in that space, do you see uh, any of any of the cohorts that you uh, do work with or even some outside of, outside of Stone and Chalk in those spaces starting to experiment and explore um, opportunities in and around there? Yeah, every day. Uh, one of the interesting things about AI uh, is it's changing the startup world, maybe more than the other ones, uh, in a way that's been ne never been seen before. It's dramatic what's going to happen with, with the startup world and the VC community and the way funding happens. Because typically the way it happens right now is a startup will come up with an idea, they'll mm. think through their process, they'll build their MVP and a product market fit, they'll test the market, then they'll realize they need some money to hire some people and build some code and you know get some sales in. Uh, then they go and they go to a venture capitalist who takes a percentage of the business and they give them some money. That takes a long time. Yeah. Well, you can go product market fit to, you can go concept to product market fit and um, spinning up an entire company in, in hours now. Yes. So the idea of it's so going much through faster. that whole process, um, what we'll probably see is you won't see a startup with an idea looking for funding. You'll see a startup with, 20 ideas, 50 ideas, mm. all launched within yes. days. Yes. Quickly, fast, running. They'll kill the ones that don't work or automatically they'll just kill themselves. Uh, and, they'll, and they'll then 
expand on the ones that do work. And so they don't need hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. They just need enough to get going and move, and then the AI will figure out where the funding comes from and where the, where the, uh, where the revenue comes from and where the market is and which ones to kill and which ones to improve on. And so that whole world is going mm. to change. And so what we do will change, what the startups do will change, what the VCs that we work with and the mentors we bring into this community will all have to think differently. Yeah. So yeah, it's, um, it's going to be a fun time. And do it a hell of a lot faster. Faster and, uh, and differently. Yeah. It, 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 the, the, the scale up, the startup to scale up cycle um, won't be years. I don't think it'll be more than months. Uh, the funding cycle won't be months to years. It'll be hours to, 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 to maybe days. Uh, you know, these things are, are going to fundamentally shift the way VCs look at investment, the way startups look at VCs, and yeah. whether they need to give up equity, and all of that will change. And it also means that, uh, I would assume, those very quick month-day type or hour-type hour startup experiments are going to be much cheaper in terms of right. getting validation, getting first customers in the door, whatever it might be. But they'll also burn out faster. Correct, yeah. And so that's this idea of this, you, you know, a startup studio more than a startup. So yeah. you won't go out and get millions for idea number one. You'll go out and you'll run idea number one to fund idea number two. Yes. And then that one will peter out because somebody has figured out how to disrupt that with their competing AI and then the next one and the next one. So there'll be, um, you know, a lot more churn mm. in the startup world, uh, which is probably a good thing but it's going to take time to get used to. Yeah. I, I wanted to circle back on something uh, that's kind of underlying all of this. And uh, I mean, it's part of the ecosystem as well, but government um, and in terms of organization, government is, is on the, the slower end of innovation, not to, not to bag anyone out, but that's kind of its, its reputation. Um, being so invested in startups and being a, a partner alongside, you know, ecosystems such as yours, what are what are the benefits to them? Because I feel like it isn't just yes, we we can now say that Site X is part of a, an innovation hub and we help bring that to life. Um, is there a broader intent from? you know, the best governments to want that type of infrastructure in their in their area or in their region? And how easy is it to bring them on a journey and even find opportunities for them to, to innovate and to take some of that culture and sort of bring that into government? Yeah, look, we wouldn't exist without government, so I'll, so I'll, I'll start with that. Uh, we've, we have generous partnerships with state governments and uh, and the Commonwealth, and we're working on even more of those because yeah. there is a role to play. Uh, I think it's critical, in fact, for government, and particularly at the, at the federal level, to be creating, a, first of all, a national innovation strategy right. and a national approach to how we deal with startups and scale-ups because, as we talked about before, yeah. these are economic development engines and precincts and hubs like ours and, and the partners that we have and the other ecosystem builders that we work with all across the country. Uh, we all add a tremendous amount of value that is hard to... It's always hard to quantify, mm. um, although I'm going to give you some numbers in a minute. Yeah. Uh, 
But the first thing is we create jobs, we create opportunities, we create pathways that are either not there or hidden. You know, I always mm. talk about what we call the entrepreneur career path. It, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a bus driver or a dentist or an accountant, you know what to do. You know what school to go to and what courses to take right, and right. what to study and what to do. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you are on your own. And there's Very no much place so, to yeah. go, right? There's no guardrails. There's no guidelines. There's no playbook. There's your, your teachers, your guidance counselors, and your parents don't understand it, most likely. Uh, and so, and, and it's considered risky. And yeah. it's not a real career. Yeah. Get uh, a real job. That's right. Yeah. I'm still waiting for a real job. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the truth is... Uh, those are all misconceptions and you know anybody who's worked for a big tech company in the last two years you know 40 percent of those staffs have been laid off so i think we all know that that's not exactly a guarantee either so there are no guarantees in this world but but what there are uh in this world there are machines that can deliver value for an economy Mm. and one thing that's really important is new technology and new ideas and people working and creating their uh creating wealth for themselves for their employees, and for the cottage industries that pop up to support them. So if you look at us, we've got roughly 600 companies and roughly 6,000 people as part of our uh, our ecosystem. And and that's just the, the startups and scale-ups. Surrounding that, we've mm-hmm. got hundreds of mentors and hundreds of finance partners and hundreds of others who provide services like accounting and taxes and legal and go-to-market strategy and pitch writing and proofreading and copywriting all those things it's it's millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that that revolve around this as an industry so government has a role there because government reaps the reward yeah tax benefit it 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 creates uh, security and safety for the the country it creates economic growth and and what we are trying to do because australia suffers from a lack of economic diversity Mm. when it comes to our uh, our economy, uh, we are heavily resource-focused. Yes. And we're trying to create a, a sustainable tech-driven economy. Mm. And that's, by definition, a very diverse economy. And that complexity and diversity of our of the economics that we create as, as ecosystem builders is incredibly valuable for the government. And if you look at the, the World Economic Forum rankings of economic complexity and what that means, you know, we're very low on that list and we need to grow. Right. Um, and so, so governments should be investing because the government overall is there to serve the people and the people are the ones who benefit. Mm. Yeah. No, that's, it's really important to, to tie that back. I, I feel like, and, the, and I think regardless of government's reputation in innovation, the ability to draw, you know, employees, not have them drain out of a, say Australia or even a region. Yeah, brain drain's real. Um, to to have those sort of epicenters of knowledge and capability are, are really important. Yeah, that that's really that's really interesting. Um so just to kind of tie things together and it's a question that I that I ask everyone is um you know change is part of the future. You know how we how we meet the future entirely depends on our skill set and our capability. But from your personal experience, what is one skill that you've grown or or you have um, that has helped you meet change? 
regardless of when it is and do you have an example of when when that might have been or what that looks like yeah look uh the hardest thing a human can do is change hmm. and i'm i'm just gonna lay that out there as a hard <laughs> fact there's nothing harder that a human can do let me give you an example of how hard it is to change right well let's be a little bit controversial uh <laughs> changing your mind i'm not talking about i was going to wear blue shoes this morning now right. i'm wearing black that's not changing your mind Changing your mind is you believed something to be true yesterday. Yep. You knew it as a fact. And now you believe it to be false and you believe something else. You can count the number of times a human being does that in their lifetime probably on one hand. Yeah. Yep. Right? So, for example, if I was to say to you, and this is, you know, go either way, it doesn't matter. If you believe in God or you don't believe in God, pick side. I don't care which one. What would it take for you to change that opinion to the other opinion? Mm. It's, it's mind-blowing how difficult that is, and it, yeah. never, it, it almost never happens. And that might be the hardest of all the, the, the dis descriptions, but, but you get the point. So changing of a mind is the most difficult thing a human can do. So what does that mean in a world where innovation is always, always about change? Well, it yeah. makes that one of the hardest things people can do. And so for me, the skill that I, I am lucky enough to have, I think, um, and that I appreciate is the ability to unlearn. Because lots of people can learn. Right. You know, every interview, I learn quickly. Really explain that. Who learns slowly? Whoever says, I don't learn quickly. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Lots of people can learn different things quickly. Congratulations. How quickly can you unlearn? Mm. Now, that, answer that question, and you've got somebody who's really interesting. So, for me, again, it goes back to that, I think, that early growth uh, as a child when, when I didn't have a yes or no answer to my for, for anything from my father till I was like 35 years old, right? Uh, it, there was no well, it thing. depends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, in which universe could this be true? I mean, it, it, those questions are really hard for most people to think through. But for me, mm. the ability to say, okay, I believed this yesterday. I mean, I knew it. Here's the eight facts I had. Boom. Suddenly I learned, oh, my God, here's fact number nine or ten. I'm, I'm very happy to say, okay, that thing I told you was a dead set fact yesterday. I don't believe it anymore. Now I believe this. Some people see that as a weakness. I see that as a strength. Mm. And I think scientists are really good at that. Yep. Uh, the good ones, <laughs> they, they look at the facts <laughs> and they, the scientific method says, okay, I believe the facts. Um, that's a skill set I think most people struggle with. Yeah. And, and because your worldview and your political influence and your upbringing and all of that has an impact on whether you are able to unlearn something mm. and really change your mind. Um, I'll give you a, a, a small example, but you know, I was very, um, I was adamant that, and I still am to some degree, that physical co-location is critical for innovation. Absolutely critical. Well, I think we all learned over COVID that maybe that wasn't so critical. Um, it's still important. It's still really the best way to do things, but you know, Ray, we worked on a couple of projects together no, over, absolutely. over COVID that were incredibly innovative and incredibly re uh, rewarding and, and successful. Um, so I completely changed my tune on, you know, people having to work physically in the same place all the time. And that's just a small change. But, but I would have told you before COVID, there's no way we could have delivered the things we delivered over COVID right. as consultants. But we did. Yeah. We did it in, in, in really, you know, impressive ways, I think. So so those are those are some of those little times in life when you have to unlearn. I had to unlearn what I thought about, you know, how to interact and how to create innovation and how to how to how to 
interact with with people at a distance and, mm. uh, and and i just said okay well the facts are pretty obvious because now i don't have a choice yeah and so covid ta- taught me that that wasn't necessarily as critical as i thought yeah and i think i'd imagine that most people find that so hard to to unlearn or to have an have an opinion or a or a belief and then have to unlearn that it strikes at identity it strikes at a whole lot of internal psychological things that that kind of mean if you're not ready and capable of doing that or or at least open to that it's going to be very hard to see any other worldview or any other perspective um, and I've always admired that um, particularly about you and your approach I've always seen that and to be honest it's kind of shocked me a couple of times when you've you said things like you know what that wasn't right and now we're going to do this and uh, to see leaders do that is really uh, empowering and 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 exciting to do but but yeah um, strong opinions loosely held is uh, something that comes up yeah over often. and over again <laughs> it does yes I, I've changed it now though because of stone and chalk it's it's strong opinions but they're all written in chalk ah okay <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it, it, it it's just as important today as it ever was and and that's that's what I'm learning is is all about right and um, there's a couple other little catchphrases that you've heard me say over the years right that are that, that speak to that one was one that I heard from Arthur Ashe uh, I read from Arthur Ashe years and years ago mm. start where you are use what you can or d- use what you have do what you can yeah right yeah. Uh, moving on and, and then you know wabi-sabi which of course is right. nothing is permanent nothing is perfect and nothing is ever finished yes. so living with imperfection is part of that right being able to unlearn or not being tied so dramatically to a worldview and and um you know loosely held opinions those are all they all they all get tied up in those sayings to me and it's really important to be able to to say that my identity isn't what i believe yeah my identity is how i believe yeah and i think that's a really different opinion or approach that that most people take because most people as you said is their worldview is their identity um for me it's you know i i can unlearn who I was yesterday and be somebody new tomorrow. And right. that's cool with me. Yeah. And I mean, it just, just even talking like this is, it's good to kind of think on what this means and tie it back to the startup space. I think and feel like a lot of the, the mindsets that you need to be successful in that space come from a desire to continually generate questions not necessarily worried too much about having firm answers on all of them all the time because part of the exploration for the answer helps you arrive at another question or multiple other questions which means you're in a whole uh, whole other space again um so i feel like that's i mean it that in itself is an exciting thing but very different to a world where you're looking for answers you have an answer those answers are defined and almost written in that stone um, and they can't be altered that that's kind of incompatible to looking at the future and wanting to change for that and you know being able to embrace it it is yeah absolutely i mean there's a word for it right there's a term for it. it's called the scientific method right (laughs) right it really is how i think about startups and startup founders who are successful have this in common yeah they're not trying to build a thing they're trying to meet a need 
We're trying to fill that pain point and, yeah. and solve it. And so they don't, the ones who are successful uh, are incredibly determined. They won't give up easily, but they will change and pivot and iterate constantly. And those are nuances that are really important. And the good founders, the good startups, and the good teams, not just the startup founders, but the good teams who work with startups that are successful all have that in common. They can throw out yesterday's knowledge and replace it with today's knowledge based on new evidence. And that is the scientific method. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure, Ray. Yeah, really enjoy the discussion. My thanks to Michael Bromley and the team at Stone and Chalk for the time and use of their recording facilities in the Scale-Up Hub based in Haymarket, Sydney. I've included some more details on Stone and Chalk in the show notes, but you can learn more about their startup and scale-up ecosystem at stoneandchalk.com.au. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, has been quoted as saying, what's dangerous is not to evolve. The ideas that create our future are being thought of in a startup somewhere right now. Are you ready to evolve with what comes next? The Changeable is created and produced by me, Ray Pucky. Our theme music is Night Sky by Oh Boy. Please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. I'd especially love your feedback and input, which you can share with me at thechangeable.co. Until next time, thanks for listening. Since recording the episode, Michael's told me that he's moved on from Stone and Chalk. I'm sure wherever he lands next will be an adventure in itself. This interview was recorded on the 28th of August, 2023.